0: Hi, this is Bobby Kamari and I want to thank you for listening to Season 2 of the Living in Light podcast, where the whole season is going to be dedicated to the fabulous topic of sacred sexuality. I hope it blesses your socks off. This is Episode 2 of Season 2 of the Living in Light podcast and I am just so happy that you are listening today. Thank you so much. And also a huge thank you to all of you that got in touch after episode one. So encouraging. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, then please do go back and have a little listen because I kind of lay the foundations for this whole topic and I share some stuff that will definitely help you get the most out of these podcasts. And today's episode builds on some of the stuff that I touched on last time. So... Kicking off today and probably over the next three to four weeks, we're going to be looking at why God created sex which seems like quite a basic thing to unpack, but honestly, I don't know if we give it enough thought. And I truly believe that it's only when we begin to value the why and the how behind God's instructions that the spiritual penny actually drops and our inner resolve for freedom and obedience gets supernaturally strengthened because we begin to see the bigger picture as God sees it. And there are so many amazing reasons why God created sex, and some of them are very, very obvious, such as companionship, pleasure, procreation, there's preservation, um, as well as comfort and relief, which we will all definitely unpack in the coming weeks. But today, we're going to be unpacking God's what I believe to be most significant reason, and which also happens to be, I think, the most overlooked reason for God creating sex, and this is covenant intimacy. This is something I introduced last week, but it's going to be in a lot more detail today, and I'm just going to be honest, people, preparing for this episode has been intense. I have been so soberly marked by just how sacred sex is. And I actually thought I knew, but I am telling you this thing is holy, so holy on the deepest level. And the more that I discover about it, the more majestic and sacred it becomes to me. And I find myself all the more revering and honoring God for his incredible wisdom and loving kindness in designing sex the way that he has. And as I actually talk to you guys today, I am feeling the weight of holiness on this thing. Because, I mean, when I felt God prompting me to do season two um, of like the Living in Light podcast on the topic of sacred sexuality, I didn't grasp the weight of it. In my mind, I was like, yep, yeah, it's going to be pretty straightforward. Because I'd actually found season one pretty easy to execute. And obviously, I'd written a book on sacred sexuality and I've taught quite a lot on it and so I figured that yep I've got all the material it's just a case of you know kind of delivering it via podcast and planned every episode and I broke all the topics down and I was like okay god we are good to go and then he literally flipped turned the script and began to take me so deep traveling down roads I was not expecting to travel in this season and Each episode is literally taking me, I mean, I want to say 10 times, but really like 20 times longer than I thought it would, and he is having me study all over again, and he's taking me through some serious encounters with him, and it's crazy, and it's humbling, and it's overwhelming and all I can really say at this point about these podcasts is that they're not going to be seeker-friendly podcasts in any way. You know, like where your ears get tantalized and it all feels good and it's lightweight stuff with gimmicks and different angles and all that jazz and razzmatazz. It literally, most of the time, it's just going to be the word and straight up like hopefully anointed teaching to renew our minds because That's what we actually need in this generation of gimmicks and craziness, like we just need the word straight up and the anointing of God. And so I am quite unapologetic about that because the Lord actually just wants to go deep. He wants to literally rewire the way that we think about sexuality and intimacy and he wants to sow go into our being and make crooked paths straight. And he wants true intimacy to become the cry of this generation and the generations to come because he is readying the bride for his son and he is not messing around. So I don't even know how many of you are willing to go on this journey, willing to be purged and purified and beautified from the inside out, but It's totally okay if this podcast is not your cup of tea. So, with that said, I am just going to pray and then we will dive straight in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for today. Thank you for these podcasts, Lord. Thank you for your heart of intimacy. Thank you that you are an intimate God and that you created us for relationship with you and that you have brought us into a place of covenant with you, God. And I just pray, Jesus, that through my words today, Lord, that that intimacy and that holy invitation would be relayed. And through this content, Jesus, that your heart would be revealed and your desires would be known and that people would just be set free and Brought into such a place of encounter with you, God, and that chains would break and scales would fall off eyes, Jesus, and that this would just be so pleasing to you, Lord. So be so magnified, Lord Jesus, through this podcast. In your name I pray, amen. Right, okay, let's do this. Um, so I believe that there is nothing that compares to God's way of enjoying sex. His way is truly supreme. But we all know that God has designed a specific way for us to engage in sex, that not only brings glorious pleasure, but evokes loyalty and freedom, joy and passion, creativity and emotional satisfaction and wholeness of the highest degree. And he's created it to be enjoyed in an environment of transparency, of love and within covenant intimacy. And when I say covenant intimacy, I'm referring to an intimacy rooted in an unbreakable, binding union between two people. A union that is built upon loving kindness, stability and faithfulness of the most trustworthy kind. Yet, this kind of environment that God designed to be the backdrop for sex is such an alien concept in the world that we live in. I mean, even for us personally, how many of us have both desired and experienced sexual connection outside of these protective and honouring parameters and thought it was completely normal, thought that sex accompanied by deception and dishonour or distrust was still sex, or sex that left us feeling empty was still sex, it was just unfulfilling sex, or sex that came with a truckload of dysfunction was just part and parcel of life and relationships. But That is so not how God made sex to be experienced. He designed sex to be intertwined with marriage within covenant. And God's purposes for sex have always been rooted in marriage and always been built upon covenant. And sex experience outside of marriage covenant, it's not even called sex as far as God is concerned. God calls that sexual disorder. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for this is zakab. And this is also the same word used to describe animals mating. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for zakab is porneia, where we get porn from. But this term porneia doesn't just cover pornography as we know it, but it applies to every aspect of sex outside of covenant marriage. So this includes masturbation fornication, sex with someone that you're living with but not married to, sex with someone you are in a long-term relationship with but not married to, homosexuality, adultery, paedophilia, looking at someone with lust, like literally the whole nine yards come under this caption of pornea. So what the world deems to be standard sex is in fact sexual disorder. It's a violation of God's design, a misuse of sex which will ultimately only lead to emptiness, pain and destruction. Not to mention the spiritual repercussions that we will experience but more about that in a later episode. But fundamentally it will rob us of the kind of intimacy that God's design for sex was created to bring us and that's what I want to look at today. So I am going to begin by unpacking Genesis 2:24 for us in the amplified version. So here in this verse it says, "Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall become united and cleave to his wife and they shall become one." So for a start, this verse shows us that for God, this principle of leaving your parents then uniting and bonding to your spouse and becoming one flesh, which is in essence sex taking place, is what God considers to be the definition of marriage. So the act of sex and the environment of marriage are intertwined. Next, we're going to look at the term united. Because God created us as body, soul, and spirit, being united doesn't mean that they become one unit simply sexually simply physically but they are also united in the soul so in their mind will and emotions and of course they're united spiritually and this scripture tells us that they do this by cleaving together now for us to truly grasp what god is saying to us through his word we have to look at the original definitions because english and many modern languages simply just do not have the word or the terminology to truly express the meaning of the original word. So we must look at the original words. And so the original Hebrew term for cleave, which is pronounced dobak, in case you're interested, means adhere to. And this involves a clinging to, sticking to, staying close, cleaving, keeping close, being glued together, Being bound inseparably, pursuing or following closely, joining, overtaking, catching, being deeply attracted to, holding fast, joining together, being steadfast, being loyal to and bonding together, amongst many other words as well. So if we bear that in mind, firstly, we see that the way God set this whole thing up was that the guy leaves his family and pursues his wife. He chases after her because that's actually one of the meanings of the word dabak, chases after. And so the man leaves his mother and father and chases after his wife. So men are called to be pursuers. And then, according to this verse, he sticks with her and he's deeply attracted to her. He is loyal to her, literally glued to her and bonds together with her. And as a result, they both form a godly soul tie. Now, many of you will know, some of you may not, but a soul tie is a spiritual connection between two people who have been physically intimate with each other or who have had intense emotional or spiritual association or relationship. And so in this cleaving process, a godly soul tie is formed where they are literally glued together in devotion and loyalty to one another. But this concept of cleaving is not just a biblical one. According to scientific research, humans have been born with a bonding mechanism placed within us for future healthy, stable marriages. And this bonding mechanism includes various chemicals, including oxytocin, vasopressin, and dopamine that are released during sexual activity, and they alter the neurological connections in the brain, which then rewire the way that we think. This is why, in many cases, You can't get someone out of your head when you get sexually intimate with them because the sexual encounters become etched in your sexual memory, gluing you to them neurologically. And God designed these chemical reactions to occur in marriage, not just for the pleasure factor, but also so that this neurological bonding would enhance and strengthen the marital intimacy because two souls would literally become tied together. And in marriage, this covenant soul tie, which is taking place spiritually and soulishly and neurologically, is being blessed by the Holy Spirit because it's a union being established before God and it's in union with God. And this is one of the insane things about covenant marriage. Because in covenant marriage, two people are united in God together at their deepest level within their human spirit, and it's this part of them that's connected with God. Because as born-again believers, we actually have this unique capacity to bond with God and with one another in marriage in a way that is simply not possible for someone who is not born again. And the reason for this is that if you are born again, this means that you have been regenerated and made spiritually alive in Christ. And it means your human spirit is united with God's spirit. So when a couple whose human spirits are alive and united with God, they are then able to come together at a spiritual level in a way that is simply not possible if your human spirit is dead because the brutal truth is that unless we are born again, our human spirit does not have the capacity to connect with another human spirit at that ultimate level of intimacy because the deepest part of us, which was made to first and foremost connect with God's spirit, is dead until we are born again. And therefore, as deep and as intimate as a connection outside of this triune context of covenant marriage may seem, it will always only be soulish in its level of connection, meaning it will only be emotional or neurological. Like That's the deepest point of connection. And it simply cannot be a connection at the deepest level of our divine wiring because that can only take place when that part of us is spiritually alive and in communion with God. And I actually recognise this from my own personal experiences in relationships. Because now that I'm born again and I have experienced true intimacy at the deepest level of my being in my union with Christ, in hindsight, I can totally recognize that not only firstly did I engage in relationships that were built upon lust and deception, but even when it did feel like love and I had all the butterflies and, you know, I was kind of properly loved up for months, even years, and when I thought that all of me was connected to all of them, but actually that was impossible because my inmost being was still dead. And I was simply a walking corpse, cohabiting with someone, thinking I was alive and in love. But because I wasn't born again yet, the deepest part of me, my human spirit, wasn't even alive. And so no matter how connected I may have felt to the person I was with at the time, the deepest way that we ever had a capacity to connect with one another would only ever have been soulishly. But in my inmost being, I was a corpse. And all these soul ties that I had with these men, they were all illegal in God's eyes. Because this is the thing, soul ties don't just get formed in godly marriages, soul ties occur with anyone we have sex with. Because the law of two becoming one and cleaving together means you are married whether you believe in God or not. So when you aren't physically married, but cleave together by having sex, then you have made a covenant with each other. And you have become spouses and you are bound together and soul ties end up being formed illegally, whether you are aware of it or not. And if you have sex with multiple partners, then in the realm of the spirit, you end up being married multiple times to multiple people. And each time you have sex with someone new, you are committing adultery. And all the while that we are bonding illegally, we are actually losing our inbuilt divine capacity to bond with our spouse the way that we were created to bond originally. And I know, I know it sounds so heavy and intense. I I get it, especially when you compare it to the hookup culture that we live in or the way that sex has been portrayed in society. But this is because sex is no lightweight matter. It's deeply embedded in the binding framework of marriage before God. Because contrary to what Western society increasingly attempts to convince us, marriage is not merely a legal contract or something that you can just dissolve if things don't work out. Marriage is in fact two people becoming one flesh, body, soul and spirit through a blood covenant, which is what we read next in this scripture. And in order for us to understand what that means, we have to understand blood covenants. And so that is what I'm gonna unpack next. So a covenant is a binding union between two parties and there is always some kind of physical symbol to mark the covenant. So for example, in Genesis six, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world by sending a global flood, and he gave physical evidence of this promise, which was a rainbow. Now God, he is the original initiator of the covenant. And in the Bible, there are lots of covenants made between God and man, And there are also many covenants made between humans, whether that's individuals, families, tribes, or nations. And the strongest type of covenant that there is, is a blood covenant. And this is something actually that's practiced all around the world in loads of different nations and in lots of different contexts. But a blood covenant was a formal, solemn and binding agreement, a vow or a pledge between two parties made by cutting or dividing of animals into two parts. And the Hebrew word for covenant is berith, which comes from the root meaning to cut. So a covenant was cut with the sacrifice of animals. After splitting them precisely in half, the animal halves were arranged opposite each other on the ground, leaving a pathway between them. The two parties making the covenant would walk from either end of the path meeting in the middle. The meeting ground between animal pieces was seen as holy ground. And there, the two individuals will cut the palms of their right hands and then join these hands together as they mutually pledged a vow, promising all of their rights, all of their possessions and benefits to each other. Next, the two would then exchange their belt and their outer coat, and in doing so, they would take some part of the other person's name. So they would exchange names. And cutting a covenant wasn't something that you just entered into lightly. They were and they still are seen as sacred as binding until death. And they also involve a sharing of all debts and assets. And this is why marriage really is no lightweight thing, is so much more than a piece of paper or a legal contract. It's an unbreakable blood covenant between two parties. And in this blood covenant of marriage, God divinely designed our bodies so that when two heterosexual virgins have sex for the first time, the woman's hymen breaks and blood is shed. And this is why virginity is so significant. Because this cutting of the hymen and covering of blood establishes a blood covenant between both the spouses and it binds them together as covenant partners in an unbreakable bond of faithfulness, of stability and loving-kindness towards each other, where they make a pledge to never leave nor forsake one another. And this covenant of marriage was always designed by God to shadow the covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. And this covenant was known as the Old Covenant, which originally began with Abraham. But in this covenant, the nation of Israel would be God's precious possession. They would represent him as his chosen people. They would be a sanctified, dedicated and consecrated nation. They would walk in holiness and righteousness. They would keep God's commands. And this covenant involved shedding blood in circumcision of all Israelite males, as well as the shedding of blood of unblemished animals when they would have to make sacrifices for breaking the commands. But Israel wasn't just a royal priesthood. God actually betrothed Israel to him as his wife. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what he did so that he could actually show his loving kindness to this nation in a unique way that would one day open the door to the whole world being invited into a covenant union with him. But in this covenant with Israel, Jehovah God would be Israel's spiritual husband, and Israel would be loyal to her husband, to her maker. And we read about this in Hosea 2, 18-20, again, amplified version, and it says this, And in that day will I make a covenant for Israel with the living creatures of the open country and with the birds of the heavens and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and abolish battle equipment and conflict out of the land and I will make you lie down safely. I will even betroth you to me in stability and in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And the word know in brackets in this scripture it says recognize, be acquainted with, appreciate, give heed to and cherish. That's what no means. And so God is saying in the scripture to the nation of Israel that I will demonstrate my hasid to you. This Hebrew word hasid, it means steadfast love and mercy, faithfulness, and God saying that I will demonstrate my hasid to you and I will make you my wife and we will know each other in spiritual intimacy where you will be fully known by me. You will recognize me, you will appreciate me, you will give heed to me and cherish me and I will be loyal to my everlasting covenant and my love to you and with a faithfulness will I keep my promises to you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he uses the word know here, which is translated in Hebrew, yada. And this means to know. And it can be a knowing which is as intellectual as knowing the answer to a maths equation. Or as we know from the last episode, it can mean to be fully known in the most intimate way, which is actually the context here, being fully known by God. Being fully accepted, being desired, being seen, being fully recognized, being beheld, being deeply acquainted with, being cherished. And he's saying this to Israel, that within this steadfast, trustworthy backdrop of my faithful, loving action, of my loving kindness, of my loyalty and my devotion to you, know me, yada me Israel, be fully known by me. And this very word yada is God's word for sex. And we first come across this word in Genesis 4:1, when we read about Adam and Eve having sex for the first time. It says Adam knew Eve. So Adam knew Eve the way that God wanted to know Israel. And so God's design for sexual knowing, which is the deepest way a human can be known by another human, was designed to mirror the spiritual knowing that God had invited Israel into, which was the deepest connection that could ever exist, even far greater than marital sexual intimacy. And this is why sex was only ever designed to take place within the covenant framework of marriage, because it's the only environment that mirrors the kind of unconditionally loving attitude that emulates God's hasid, that emulates his loving kindness, his mercy and steadfastness to mankind. This is such a stark contrast to the attitude that governs the act of sex in this world. Because although God designed sex to only ever take place within the loving confines of seed, how normal is it in this world to actually experience sexual intimacy outside of a framework of unconditional love? I mean, even if I just consider my own experiences and praise Jesus that I am a new creation, but in my past, I remember sleeping with a guy that I thought I knew well enough and that we had history together only to find out after we've slept together that he was married and I was like oh okay would have been helpful to know that before but no matter how physically intimate as we may have chosen to be there was no trust there was no faithfulness to one another or a different guy who at the time I thought I was crazy about and I dreamt about us being together forever. I mean, I was pretty besotted with him and I was probably the most serious that he'd ever been about a girl. But after we slept together, he didn't even call me. And as much as I wanted to be with him intimately, the framework of our union was devoid of a covenant attitude of Hasid and of the honour and loyalty, that should always be the backdrop for a union as precious as sexual intimacy. And even when he did try and pursue me after that, and I chose to reject him and walk away, I couldn't get him out of my head, because as much as I had walked away from him, I still had a soul tie with him. And so for the next 18 months, he was still haunting my thoughts day in, day out. And then, when it came to sex in a long-term relationship, as meaningful as it may have felt during that season, and as devoted as I may have been to that relationship at that time, nothing kept me bound to that person in the long run because my attitude towards them was never one of hesed. Instead, I stayed as long as I wanted to and then left when I was no longer in love. And so what I had thought was meaningful sex in a long-term relationship was in fact completely in vain and it was rooted in selfishness and sexual dysfunction. But to be honest, sexual dysfunction was all I ever knew, because sexual disorder masqueraded itself as normality all around me, in the films that I watched, in the music I listened to, in the circles I moved in, and it was in the culture I had been shaped by. Yet God's design for sex was actually created to protect us from the frameworks of such devalue and dishonor sex was never meant to be experienced in an environment that wasn't completely enveloped in unconditional love and covenant sex was never meant for a zakab setup it was never meant for the mere mating of animal flesh such a precious deeply significant and divine exchange of intimacy was only ever designed to be experienced in an eternal covenant of loyalty of steadfast love, of faithfulness and loving kindness that reflected the covenant intimacy that God had with Israel. That covenant intimacy that we read about in Hosea. But this loving kindness that Yada intimacy is built upon wasn't just for the nation of Israel. In fact, this intimate knowing is the same loving kindness that Jesus has for the church. Because even though Father God pursued the nation of Israel with his incredible loving kindness, desiring a relationship that was the most intimate bond anyone could ever experience, Israel committed spiritual adultery by following other gods. But this didn't change God's faithful loyalty and loving kindness towards mankind because he remained loyal to his people, whether they were loyal to him or not. And despite their disloyalty, God established a new covenant through his son Jesus where man would no longer be consecrated and set apart by following the written law like in the Old Testament or by sacrificing bulls and goats but God would write his law on the very hearts of mankind and it would be the precious blood of Jesus that would pay for our sins. And his blood would be shed in order to cut a new covenant with the church betrothing us to Christ as his bride. And this is why we're called the bride of Christ. And this is why the purity of the church and spiritual intimacy is so significant because the church is actually being prepared as the spotless bride of Christ. Because just as sex in marriage in the Old Testament represented the covenant marriage that God had with Israel, for Christians, marital sex between a man and woman in a covenant marriage represents the spiritual intimacy that Christ has with his bride. And when Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, he shed his blood to demonstrate this loving kindness towards us when he cut a blood covenant with us. And this assures each and every one of us that we are so cherished, so loved and pursued by God and that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that we have been betrothed to him in his righteousness and justice, in his steadfast love and in his mercy to know him as our bridegroom. And God's design was always that mankind would be betrothed to his son, in a covenant relationship in stability and faithfulness according to Hosea 2.20 where the bride of Christ would know, recognize, be acquainted with, appreciate, give heed to and cherish the Lord and that sex was always meant to be a symbol of that intimacy which is why husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loves the church which is what we read in Ephesians and this is what it says, it says and to the husbands, you are to demonstrate love for your wives with the same tender devotion that Christ demonstrated to us, his bride. For he died for us, sacrificing himself to make us holy and pure, cleansing us through the showering of the pure water of the word of God. All that he does in us is designed to make us a mature church for his pleasure until we become a source of praise to him glorious and radiant, beautiful and holy, without fault or flaw. For this reason, a man is to leave his father and his mother and lovingly hold to his wife, since the two have become joined as one flesh. Marriage is a beautiful design of the Almighty, a great and sacred mystery, meant to be a vivid example of Christ and his church. And this is verses 25 to 27 and then verses 30 to 32 in the Passion Translation. And this is why there's nothing casual or transient or average or merely physical or relative about the true purpose of sex. It's so embedded in and symbolic of the blood covenant that Christ cut with us on the cross as a demonstration of his eternal loving kindness towards us and whether you know God or not. Whether you believe this stuff or not, sex is the cutting of a blood covenant between a man and a woman committing themselves to unconditionally love one another in the way that Christ loves his church. And this is also why sex between two men or sex between two women is spiritually illegal and unable to reflect yada intimacy because two men together or two women together cannot cut a blood covenant and therefore cannot mirror the blood covenant that we have with Christ. And as some of you listen to this, this might sound ridiculous, all this stuff about the blood covenant. And some might even argue, as I have heard in the past, that this whole idea of a blood covenant being established the first time a husband and wife come together as virgins, that actually many women don't even believe the first time they had sex. And I agree, that's absolutely true. But that doesn't actually change the mechanics of a blood covenant. And that does not change God's original design for sex and the way he designed our bodies to respond to sex. So whether we acknowledge it or not, whether a woman believes the first time she has sex or not, when we have sex with a person, we enter into a blood covenant with them. And I actually had a woman challenge me about a year ago at a Q&A after I had delivered a session on this stuff and um, she'd worked in like the medical profession and she said to me that the hymen doesn't actually even exist so she was challenging the fact that this whole thing about blood and women bleeding the first time that that really wasn't even legit and the craziest thing is is that I know the hymen exists. I mean, my own hymen broke the first time I had sex. Sorry to be so graphic, but hello, I have experience of having a hymen that broke. But she totally caught me off guard and I didn't really even know what to say for a second because I just figured that a hymen is standard for women and no one will dispute it but here she was disputing it. And by God's grace, God showed me that this precious woman was being used by the enemy to discredit the blood. And in that moment, he gave me wisdom right there and then, and I was able to respond in a way that I thank God for. And like I said in episode one, please go and research this stuff for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But as a believer, it's important that you understand the blood covenant in marriage because the enemy will endeavor to dilute and disqualify the price Jesus paid with his precious blood to draw mankind near to him in a bridal capacity because the devil knows that ultimately our capacity to walk in true intimacy rests on our understanding and our acceptance and and embracing of the blood covenant that we have with Christ and some of you may even have your own doubts too which is totally understandable but I actually want to unpack this to increase understanding so to begin with I can tell you that as someone who not only has her own hymen but that medically and scientifically from what I have researched the hymen definitely exists. And there is, however, speculation about its shape and actual purpose because aside from the biblical reference to it, many people in the medical profession don't actually know why it's there. And then, of course, there's the fact that not all women do bleed for the first time they have sex if the hymen has already been cut in other ways like exercise. But consummation of the marriage and proof of virginity weren't some optional barbaric tradition that can be disputed and deleted just because we live in modern times. They were actually significant stages of the whole marriage ritual in the Bible and even today they still remain key components in Jewish wedding ceremonies which is what I'm going to talk about now. So let me unpack that. The first part of a Jewish wedding was called the ketubah where the groom and the father of the bride would basically sign a legal document and then the couple was like 100% legally married, where now, in order for the couple to separate, they would need a legal divorce. So, once the groom satisfied the father of the bride that he had fulfilled the financial legal requirements of the ketubah, a date for the chuppah, which is the sexual consummation bit of the union, would be arranged. And so for the sexual consummation, the groom would be allowed to come to the home of the bride and consummate the marriage in her house. And then afterwards, he would lead her in a ceremonial procession to a wedding feast at his house. Right, so for the sexual consummation, a wedding bed would be prepared for the couple and there would be a proof of virginity cloth that the bride would lie on during sex. And then this is what would happen. It might sound a bit crazy, but this was standard practice and it still is in many parts of the Jewish community. So the bride and the groom would have a group of witnesses who would actually wait outside or in a room next door while the couple consummated the marriage. And so they would wait for that moment where the marriage had been consummated and it was all thumbs up. And so they would then know that the festivities could continue to the next part. And at this point, the groom would also hand the proof of virginity cloth to the witnesses. And the cloth would then be kept by the father of the bride as proof of her virginity so that if necessary, they could produce the cloth to prove their daughter's virginity if the husband ever accused their daughter of not being a virgin. And this actually used to happen if a husband, for whatever reason, wanted to defame his wife. And this is why in Deuteronomy chapter two, from verses 13 to 21, outlines the law when it comes to a girl not being a virgin at marriage. And it says this, if any man takes a wife and goes into her, meaning has sex with her, and then turns against her, And charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother should take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her and behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin but this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity and they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So here we actually read about this proof of virginity cloth that was standard practice in all the Jewish weddings. And not only is this virginity aspect of the blood covenant still very much at work in Jewish traditions and just as powerful today as it was thousands of years ago, but Christian wedding ceremonies even today are still rooted in the blood covenant, even though untold people don't even know this. And so I'm going to unpack that now so that you can actually see the significance of the blood covenant covenant and how sex being designed as part of the blood covenant is so fundamental to how things are even done today. So for a start, when it comes to the seating in a church ceremony, family and friends of the bride and groom are seated on opposite sides of the church to symbolize the cutting of the blood covenant. The centre aisle and the white runner represents the meeting ground, the pathway between the animal pieces where the blood covenant is established. And the white runner symbolises holy ground where the two lives are joined as one by God. The groom entering first, the reason behind that is that Christ, the bridegroom, has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. The groom entering the church first signifies that he is the covenant initiator. And this is so crucial because whoever initiates the covenant assumes greater responsibility in seeing it fulfilled. So God initiated the covenant of salvation with us and God is still at work to fulfill his covenants and Christ will soon appear with the sound of trumpets to consummate the wedding with his bride, the church. And then the fact that the father escorts and gives away the bride. In Jewish tradition, it was the father's duty to present his daughter in marriage as a pure virgin bride. And as one that says that I have done my very best to present to you my daughter as a pure bride before the bridegroom. And so when the minister asks who gives this woman away, The father responds, her mother and I. And then you have the white wedding dress, which has two purposes behind it. It's a symbol of the wife's purity in heart and life, as well as her reverence to God. But then it's also a picture of the righteousness of Christ that's described in Revelation 19, seven to eight, where it says, let us rejoice and shout for joy, exulting and triumphant. Let us celebrate and ascribe to him glory and honor For the marriage of the Lamb at last has come and his bride has prepared herself. She has been permitted to dress in fine, radiant linen, dazzling and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness, the uprightness, just and godly living deeds and conduct and right standing with God of the saints, God's holy people so christ clothes his bride the church in his own righteousness as a garment of fine radiant linen dazzling and white and then we have the bridal veil so not only does the bridal veil show the modesty and the purity of the bride and her reverence for god but it's actually meant to remind us of the temple veil that was torn in two when jesus died on the cross The removing of the veil took away the separation between God and man, giving believers access to the very presence of God. And since Christian marriage is a picture of the union between Christ and the church, we see another reflection of this relationship in the removal of the bridal veil. And so through marriage, the couple now has full access to one another. And then get this, joining right hands, the reason a bride and groom join right hands together is because in the blood covenant, the two individuals will join together the bleeding palms of their right hands. When their blood mixed, they would exchange a vow, forever promising all their rights and resources to each other. So in a wedding, as the bride and groom face one another to say their vows, they join right hands and publicly commit everything that they are and everything that they possess in a covenant relationship. They leave their families, forsake all others and become one with their spouse. And then we have the exchanging of the rings. So although the wedding ring is an outward symbol of the couple's inward bond, illustrated with like this unending circle and the eternal quality of love, but it's even more significant in light of the blood covenant because a ring was used as a seal of authority. And when pressed in hot wax, the impression of the ring left an official seal on legal documents. So basically, a couple wearing rings is demonstrating their submission to God's authority over their marriage. And the couple recognize that God brought them together and that he is intricately involved in every part of their covenant relationship. And then the ring also represents resources, because when the couple exchanges rings, This symbolizes that they're giving all their resources, their wealth, their possessions, their talents, their emotions, to one another in marriage. And in a blood covenant, the two parties exchanged belts, which form a circle when worn. So the exchanging of rings is another sign of their covenant relationship. And when it comes to the pronouncement of husband and wife that we see in a Christian wedding ceremony, This pronouncement is the official declaration that the bride and groom are now husband and wife and that they've begun their covenant and the two are now one in the eyes of God. And when it comes to the presentation of the couple, the minister introduces the couple to the wedding guests and he draws attention to their new identity and the name change. And similarly, in the blood covenant, two parties exchange some part of their name. This is why in Genesis 15, God gave Abraham a new name. He was called Abram and then God actually added letters from his own name to Abraham's name, giving him an A and a H from his own name and turning his name from Abram into Abraham because they had cut and entered a new covenant together. And that's why a couple has a name change when they get married. And then the reason there's a reception at a wedding ceremony is because a ceremonial meal was often part of a blood covenant. And also the reception illustrates the wedding supper of the lamb described in Revelation 19. And then cutting and feeding of the cake. This is again symbolic of cutting the covenant. So when a husband and wife, the bride and groom, take pieces of the cake and feed it to each other, once again, they're showing that they're giving their all to each other and will take care of one another as one flesh. Like it's so deep, so deep how the blood covenant is embedded in all of this. And this precious girl... When she challenged me, unbeknown to her, I am sure she had no idea that she was representing the spirit of this age that seeks to disqualify and delete and despise the power of the blood. And the enemy no doubt was scheming to remove the hymen from the equation because the blood represents the Hasid, the loving kindness that God has for mankind. And the demonstration of this Hasid is literally what our identity hangs upon. But the truth is, no matter what the tactics of the enemy might be, you just can't remove the blood. And you cannot disconnect blood covenant and sex and marriage from one another. And you cannot separate sexual knowing and intimacy from the context of marriage and blood covenant because they are all deeply intertwined. It doesn't matter how much you might disbelieve it or ridicule it or try and disprove it. It doesn't matter how much you might ignore it or undermine it or scoff at it or consider it to be outdated or no matter how much you might just simply choose to reject it. And some of you might be like, well, that's too intense. What if I just want to knock boots with someone and just get physically satisfied and I don't actually care about the covenant aspect of it all? But that's actually impossible to do because it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the message translation that there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. And as appealing as casual sex might seem, and as unappealing as a blood covenant may seem, there is this crazy misconception that casual sex or having a variety of partners in life is so much better than having sex with the same person for a lifetime. Which, if you don't understand covenant, then I get it. It probably will be boring after a while. But the way God actually designed marital sex to be, the covenant aspect of it is what enhances the pleasure, the fulfillment, the bonding, and the loyalty of it. Because each time two people have sex, they're actually re-establishing their blood covenant. And this is why we remember the cross each time we take communion, because it's a reminder of the blood covenant with Christ, and it's a re-establishment of it. And as I'm recording these podcasts in this quarantine, I've been taking communion every day, just as I'm sure many of you have been, and every single time... I take communion, I draw closer to God and get a greater revelation of what it means to be in a blood covenant with Christ as his bride. So imagine the depth of intimacy that gets cultivated for a married couple who each time they have sex, they're reaffirming their faithfulness to one another, their devotion to one another. And as they re-establish their one flesh union, they're also strengthening their bond again and again, physically, emotionally, neurologically. They're strengthening their soul tie, increasing their attraction to one another, literally getting more and more addicted to each other, bonding on a deeper level. Like all those chemicals are firing and wiring together etching one another deeper into each other's sexual memory and loyalty is increasing and pleasure is heightening and Intimacy is being strengthened and creativity is evolving, and love's getting stronger as you literally remind yourselves of one another's loving-kindness towards each other and so this misconception that having sex with the same person for the rest of your life would be boring and devoid of variety is such a lie from the enemy The truth is that we were divinely and biologically wired for loyalty, to be knitted to the one, and the variety and the fun and the creativity and evolving intimacy that permeates every dimension, soul, spirit, and body that a married couple has the capacity to enjoy totally blows any kind of worldly, soulish, or counterfeit union out of the water because it simply cannot compare to God's design for covenant intimacy. And of course, you might ask, what if you wait until you're married and then the sex is rubbish? Well, I do understand it is a concern, but it's all good, because you've got the rest of your life to grow sexually. But when you put physical desire first and make that the thing, you actually end up sabotaging, building a true foundation of emotional, relational, and spiritual intimacy, and you end up being driven by physical desire. And if the sex in your marriage is rubbish, then yes, it does end up impacting the relationship because that's all that the relationship was built on. And so once the infatuation or physical appeal wears off, if your marriage wasn't built upon covenant, then there's nothing really to say that you're going to stay together once the physical desire wanes, or if you fall out of the feeling of love, or you lose interest in sex with one another. But in a covenant marriage, you are in it for keeps. And because your attitude towards one another is one of unconditional love, then growing sexually and evolving through the awkwardness and the ups and the downs and the complexity of marital sex is done in an environment of love, trust and honour towards one another. And I actually do believe as long as you honor one another and keep one another as the sole object of one another's desire, you can be as fun and as creative with your sex life as you want to be. And the glorious thing is that because your union is a covenant union of the deepest kind, the way you woo and serve one another intimately spans across every dimension in the most creative way and allows for pleasure that's far beyond the mere physical. And in fact, statistics actually show that those who wait after marriage have the best sex life. Really, this is from a study that I read and I'll put the details in the notes, but according to this study, refraining from sex before marriage helps strengthen marriages. And this is what the study said. Couples who don't have sex before marriage are healthier. Couples who do not have sex before marriage have happier, more stable relationships and a more rewarding sex life, according to this study. Psychologists found that couples who wait until after their wedding night rated the stability of their relationships 20% higher than those whose physical relationships developed earlier. Those who practice abstinence were also found to have 20% increased levels of relationship satisfaction 12% better communication, and 15% improved sexual quality. I mean, come on now, that sounds pretty promising, doesn't it? But at this point, what I do also wanna say is that it's okay if that wasn't your story or that isn't your story because there is so much redemption available if you have had sex outside of covenant. I mean, I am prime example of someone who has lived a life of counterfeit intimacy who has been restored in the most incredible way and is now experiencing true intimacy of the most blissful kind. And so I know God can absolutely rewire every single heart and break every single illegal soul tie and make crooked paths straight for anyone that comes to him. And I will definitely in a future episode be unpacking how to break soul ties and what counterfeit sexuality looks like. But for now, I just want to close by encouraging us all to truly honour, cherish and steward this blood covenant that we have with God, with every inch of our being and to esteem the marital blood covenant as one that is a beautiful, sacred symbol of the intimacy that we have with God. And that as a bride of Christ, may we be so radically persuaded to pursue God's design for covenant intimacy like never before. And may we refuse to settle for anything less. So just to close, I am going to say a quick prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your precious son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be your covenant bride. Thank you for the price that you paid, the blood that you shed in order to invite us into Yada intimacy. And I pray, Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that you will just touch every heart, that there would be such a fresh place of reverence and such a fresh place of hunger to uphold and to honor and to steward well this incredible covenant intimacy that we have with you, whether it's as individuals, whether it's as spouses, Lord Jesus, would you, Holy Spirit, just enable Um, such a fresh place of consecration and such a fresh place of surrender, God. And I pray, Lord, for such a sweet, sweet just enjoyment and celebration of the covenant union that we have with you, Lord. And and where there may have been a violation of covenant, whether individually or whether in marriages, Lord Jesus, I just pray um, for your just your kindness and your compassion and your mercy just to come and to heal and to restore, to redeem, to forgive, to release. Father, I pray that today is like a line drawn in the sand where this just heavenly reverence and enablement allows us to walk in covenant with you in the most glorious way and that out of that comes this reverence and this honor for this gift of sex and all that it represents, Lord Jesus. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. I bless every single listener. And I just thank you that each and every one of us have been made for covenant intimacy and to delight in your hasid, in your loving kindness towards us, Lord. So, I just release such freedom and joy and celebration, God. And wherever there may have been funky stuff, wherever there may have been things that were not in alignment with your covenant Lord I just break that right now in Jesus name and I just release all your goodness and your peace and your joy and your hope and your celebration and your holiness Lord all wrapped up in your beautiful love in Jesus name I pray amen thank you so much for joining me for today's show all related social media handles and links can be found in the notes section if you did enjoy today's episode, then please do feel free to share it and do subscribe to the podcast if you want to know when a new episode is heading your way. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do that via Instagram or Facebook, or you can head over to livinginlight.co.uk. I cannot wait to be with you guys again, and thank you so much for listening to the Living in Light podcast. You're beautiful, so beautiful.